You're listening to the Deepening Your Practice podcast with George Haas. For more information, visit www.metagroup.org. That's www.mettagroup.org. So, welcome everybody. This is Deepening Your Practice. Uh, Deepening Your Practice is intended as an intermediate or advanced class. And what that means is that we won't be uh, covering the basics of meditation. I expect you already to know that. That being said, if you find that I'm talking about something and you're not sure what I'm talking about, I'm happy to answer any questions. I'm just not going to, to teach the basics. We've been talking about the uh, Manual of Insight, the Mahasi Sayadaw text, uh, a new translation by the Vipassana Metta Foundation. Um, <clears throat> And we've been talking about the chapter called Absolute and Conventional Realities. So what we're talking about here is actually, another way to put that would be the sensing experience and what we make the sensing experience into. Um, Last uh, week we talked about whether we should observe internal or external phenomenon as a part of the exploration of this. And the instruction for Mahasi was to pay attention to the to both internal and external, but the focus on internal was the place where you really tease apart the process of making something out of the sensing experience, because you can actually pull that apart. And then in using the uh, understanding of how uh, you form the sense of the internal experience, the sense of self, you can infer that process happening outside. But that that when we talk about uh, mindfulness of inside, mindfulness of outside, mindfulness of inside is our our process and mindfulness of outside is other people. And that it's not possible in the same way that we can tease apart in very uh, fine, in, in a very fine way, our own internal experience Uh, it's not possible really to do that with other people because we don't have the same level of access to them. So it's better to to examine outside in in bigger chunks more as holes than than the the teasing apart that's possible when you're practicing internally. Um, Another uh, interesting thing about this division of internal and external is uh, self is the internal experience and world is the outer experience. So that you can begin to uh, examine what is the selfing experience, the experience of self, and what is the experience of the world, and what is the interaction between self and world. Sometimes it's useful to talk about this in terms of mind states because mind states affect the way that you form things. So you have the sensing experience, uh, the five senses plus thinking, the five conventional senses plus thinking, and then the conditioned habit of fixating them into something. Most of the time, this process is entirely unconscious. Uh, When you think about uh, the process of knowing, you know what something is. For instance, you're listening to the sound of my voice. Um, Are you able to hear simply the vibration of sound? 
for by the time you're aware of it, by the time it enters into conscious awareness, has the meaning of the word already been associated with it? Are you hearing a word rather than a, than a, a buzz or a sound? And um, the reason for this is that the uh, processing takes about a half a second, and in mind time, that's a long time. Most of the time, you will hear the sound of vibration, you'll associate it with a word, you'll associate the meaning to the word, and then as it enters uh, conscious awareness, all of that process has already been concluded, and you just know that that's a word that has a meaning associated with it. The only time you really ever are aware that, uh, of the process of the mind attempting to figure it out is when uh, it takes longer than a half a second and then it enters into conscious awareness and the mind is still attempting to resolve the pattern recognition. So one way to do that would be to listen to exterior sound, in particular for sounds that you don't know what they are, and if that process goes on long enough, then you'll be able to watch the mind attempting to resolve the pattern recognition in conscious awareness. We can infer so one side, one side of this is an empirical insight, an empirical understanding of the pure sensing experience and then watching what the mind makes it into. Or we can infer from this process um, that this uh, pattern recognition has gone on, even though we don't have uh, a conscious experience of it. Did that make sense, what I'm saying? The same way that if we tease apart an internal process of our own, we can infer that that is also a process that other people have. So that we can know, for instance, that the sense of self arises out of internal visual experience, internal auditory experience, emotion in the body, and um, these patterns arise and they're fixated into an experience of a, of a self that is solid and continuous and ongoing. Um, even though with insight practice you'll be able to tease those apart and watch those elements come together in making that experience and in seeing that uh, there is no solid, constant, ongoing experience of self we can then infer in, uh, with other people that they also have that process and that for them there is also no continuous, ongoing uh, sense of self. Um, so the, the balance between observing internal and external objects is really organized around the deep insight of internal selfing experience, the, your own uh, body experience, your own mind experience, and then uh, uh, in the inferential understanding that other people also go through the same process to form those experiences. Then we talk about... Um, So let me just read this one uh, paragraph. Initially, one practices insight meditation by contemplating internal or external objects. However, when insight is accomplished by observing internal phenomena, all mental and physical phenomena are said to have been fully noted in terms of their characteristics. Should we observe past, future, or present phenomenon? 
One should only observe present phenomena. When empirical knowledge matures, one understands past and future phenomena using inferential insight. One shouldn't bother with past or future objects since they cannot be accurately experienced in terms of their unique characteristics and so on. It is possible, for example, to experience the mental and physical phenomena that occur in past lives. Uh, I'm having... Um, uh, yesterday when I was uh, reading from this same paragraph, uh, I'm very dyslexic and my, mi my mind was flipping the words. Uh, so... Um, um, I might when I just said that sentence did I say it as it is possible for example or did I say is it possible I said it is okay so um, just be patient with my word flipping and I'll try and catch it as I hear it uh, is it possible uh, for example to experience the mental and physical phenomena that has occurred in past lives can one know whether one had a fair or dark complexion, was able or disabled male or female? Can one truly know the physical phenomena that happened in the past? Can one know which mental states are experienced at different moments it is um, in the past and so on? Can one truly know the mental phenomena that happened in the past? Even in this present life, can one experience accurately what occurred last year, last month, or even yesterday? Indeed, it is impossible to accurately experience the mental and physical phenomena that took place even an hour or a few minutes ago. Even if one does not believe this point, one, once present objects are observed in practice at the moment they arise, then one can admit that that is so. Have you noticed yet that there is only the present moment over and over again? Uh, have you ever tried to get into the past or into the future with any success? So I think that this is a very ordinary, actually, ordinary experience that, that our present moment experience is actually the only experience that we have, that if we are thinking about the past, we are not in the past, we are in the present moment thinking about the past. If we were thinking about the future, we are not actually in the future. We are in the present moment thinking about what the future might be. It is possible to get caught up in, in the content of thought and lose awareness of that. But there is never a time when you are not in the experience of the present moment. So that any uh, contemplation uh, about the past or the future actually happens in the present moment. Any confusion about that? It's pretty straightforward, I think. One question, only in that sometimes there is a sensory experience created in the present of stimuli or factors from the past. Right. So what is that? A kind of, it's a hybrid present moment somehow neuro-stimulating through memory past phenomena, past arisings? Well, I think that what you're talking about what would be something that would be described in the, in the, the um, dependent origination cycle. Um, the 
previous moment sets up the possibility of the conditions for the present moment. And then as the present moment ends, it sets up the conditions for the next moment to unfold. Uh, we're still subject to being in the present moment, but without the conditions of the pre- previous moment, the, the current moment would not have happened in the way that it, it was. So an example of this would be you're sitting in meditation, you're focused on uh, sound, external sound, um, but you're focusing on the sound of the traffic because there's a large bus that goes by, so that draws your attention. As the sound of the bus fades, you hear a chirp of a bird. If your attention wasn't in auditory sound space, it's unlikely that the bird sound would have been enough to draw your attention there, but because your attention is there already, then you hear the bird sound. And in hearing the bird sound, you're suddenly aware that there's hundreds of bird sounds. But you wouldn't have noticed any of those if you're uh, if the bus hadn't gone by and dragged your attention into a loud noise so that your your attention was then sensitized to auditory thinking space. Had the bus not gone by and you were focused on some internal body sensation, there wouldn't have been enough pull in auditory space to bring your attention there and that that whole process wouldn't have happened. Then you hear this sound of birds and then you have an internal image which is Uh, a, a, a memory of the past from childhood where there was a pattern of bird sound that was similar to the one in that memory and in the the mind body mind's processing of that uh, a whole series of images from the past that are in the same pattern as the bird sound is in the present moment come into visual thinking and if your attention then moves from auditory thinking into the visual pattern you lose awareness of the present moment bird sound because your attention has been drawn to the past and then you're in an image of what was the past but you're still in the present moment and it's still been brought up because of the conditions of the present moment but your attention is not on the sound anymore of the experience of the present moment, it's on the visual activity the visual activity of those bird sound memories from childhood uh, have an emotional component and you have a strong sense of emotion arise in the moment and then you you lose attention of awareness of the past imagery and you're in the body touching into the emotional experience that is embedded in the the remembrance of the the child sound. And then because your attention is in the body, you're aware of somaticized emotion that's also in the body and your attention moves to that and you've completely lost that whole thread of, uh, of thought and you're now in the experience of the, of the uh, body in the present moment. And that's a very common way that the attention moves through experience and in and out of awareness of memory. Um, but all of that happens in, in, in the present moment and, and the movement between the various aspects of where your attention goes uh, is always set up by the moment before. Is that a good enough explanation of what we're talking about? Yeah. So you don't ever want to get pulled enough into the content that you lose awareness of awareness. Awareness the thing that knows where your attention is in this process. Yeah. But sometimes the, the uh, uh, 
content can be very compelling. You're thinking about uh, hearing a bird sound from the time you were five years old and then embedded in that process of memory is also an, an anger at something that happened to you then and all of a sudden you're flooded with, with anger. Um, and then something about the way you form the, the present moment, for instance, the sound of the music suddenly becomes an irritant because it's distracting you from what's happening in the present moment. And so you, the anger transfers to the, the sound of the music, even though the sound of music is just vibration. Right? And then because it creates an emotional event which you can't hold, the, the, the mind reaches into the tool bag of the different kinds of uh, emotional regulation tools and it turns on a, a narrative that drives an emotion that's intended to mask the emotion of the present moment and help you regulate the experience and then you're totally caught up in the content uh, and the body is filling with emotion. Is that describing a, an experience that you might notice? Yeah. Um, so where we want to be is in awareness watching this happen without identifying too strongly with the content of it. And then um, the, one of the metaphors I like is so you're standing on the bank of a rushing river just full and the water is very strong and moving very quickly and you can stand there on the bank of awareness and that whole thing can flow by and you don't get pulled into it but if you would slip off the bank into the water you would be just bashed against rock after rock after rock as the, the water pulls you along until you can actually crawl out again onto the bank of awareness, totally caught up in the in the flow of that content process is very uh, painful often, very filled with uh, suffering, uh, and you're just caught up in the current of emotion in the body and in, uh, in the content of thought, but if you can pull yourself out of that and stand on the bank and just watch all of those formations go by, there's very little suffering in that. Does that make sense? Why you would want to not identify, not stand in the actual flow of the water, but on the bank and watch it go by. It's because you can be at peace there, whereas if you're caught up in the content, you can often be knocked around. Present phenomena are those that occur within the continua of our lives, that is, within our bodies and minds, as well as those that occur at the six sense doors. If one mindfully and attentively observes, one can experience the unique characteristics and so on of distinctly appearing mental or physical phenomena. For example, if one is watching the moment a bolt of lightning strikes, one can accurately see where and how it strikes, but if one looks afterward, one cannot perceive exactly where it struck. Latent defilements dwell in, in present phenomena that we have not yet noted. These are uh, called defilements that lie dormant in sense, sense objects or defilements that arise when sense objects are not observed. Such uh, defilements do not dwell in a phenomena that has been noted. By observing present objects, we can temporarily remove mental defilements and as a result of this, the creation of unwholesome karma then the negative consequences under the influence of that defilement become impossible. I will explain this further below. 
So in some sense, I've, I've already described that paragraph in my description. In a noting practice, you know where your attention is, you soak into the sensing experience of it, and in the Karnaka Samadhi model that Mahasi is talking about, or the momentary concentration insight practice, if in the moment of noting there's no defilements, then you're free to stand on the bank and watch the river flow by. You don't get caught up in it. What often happens to us is we get caught up in our understanding of what we think is happening, and then we take an action from there. Um, If we're caught up in the content of it, and we don't notice the mind state that has affected the way that we've made the sensing experience into something, we can be completely off base in terms of what we think is happening. Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever misunderstood what's actually happening uh, and then fixated it into the world and then responded, taken the action, created the karma from that place without investigating whether your perception of what's happening is accurate or not? So the mind states that arise filter the process of sensing uh, and then the way that we make the world out of the sensing experience is infused with the mind state. And so we, when we are working with this process of noticing what the sensing experience is, the empirical experience, what the mind state is and how it filters and changes the quality of what we make out of the world, then we're in this place where we can... Uh, create a representation of the world that is without the defilements that would drive unskillful behavior and cause us to create harmful karma or negative karma. Does that make sense? So we watch the sensing experience, we watch the mind state that we have, and then we watch how the world looks, what the quality of that is. Understanding that almost all of the time in your experience of doing this, the sensing experience will already have been made into something by the time it enters awareness and so you have the capacity for inferential insight that if you recognize that the mind is angry you know that the way that you form the world is infused with the anger and is different than what the the, uh, sensing experience would have been had the mindset of anger not be there And so you know in that insight not to act in an angrily, in an anger, uh, angering way because you can tell that the quality of experience is is distorted or you can infer that the quality of experience is distorted. Is that making sense? So what we do in terms of practice is tease apart the elements that come together so that we can begin to notice the quality of the mind that's in there. The Buddha used uh, the metaphor of the the bowl of water as a mirror. Do you remember this? That if the water is still and clear, the the world is reflected off the surface of the water as, as a pretty accurate representation of how the world is. But if you're aware that the mind is filled with craving, it's as if the water were dyed colors and then the image that's reflected off the surface has the craving infused in it, embedded into it. The mind is aversive, it's as if the water were boiling and it distorts the presentation of the world. If the mind is 
filled with restlessness and agitation and says as if a wind were blowing across it if the mind is filled with sloth and torpor it's as if the water uh, was overgrown with algae and if the mind is filled with the hindrance of doubt then it's as if the water were muddy when you look at water that's muddy the image that's reflected off it is very different than if the water is still and clear and so paying attention to the mind state will give you an indication of what the quality of mind is that is to say what the quality of the representation of the sensing experience is so following the instructions we want to look at objects of meditation which are easy uh, so clear and easy to attach or connect to so that we can see um, <clears throat> clearly what's happening in the mind we don't need to get all of the fine minutiae and because we have the capacity for inferential insight uh, if you remember uh, it says here um, when insight is accomplished by observing internal phenomena all mental and physical phenomena are, are also said to have been fully noted in terms of their characteristics so you watch the pattern of these threads visual thinking, auditory thinking, and emotion in the body. You watch the way that they form experience, but you know, you pull them apart and then watch them come together. And watching these basic experiences, you can infer that you make everything up in, in a similar way. Is that making sense? So, um, we have done a lot of see her field technique here um, as a flexible noting strategy, one of Shinzen's things. Um, and so inside and outside has been mixed. Uh, your attention can be drawn to anything. It can be an outside sound, an internal auditory thinking process, internal visual thinking. If you're sleepy and you open your eyes, your attention can be drawn to the outside world. Um, gravity, temperature, respiration, circulation, digestion, the efforting to hold the posture or emotion in the body, any of those become these three categories of see, hear, feel. And so in today's meditation, what I want to do is to begin some further uh, clarification of the process of sensing by focusing only on in the internal experience. So we're going to be looking at internal visual thinking. Um, you may be aware of a mental screen centered at the eyes, a blank screen. Some people report a, a modulating grayscale, that would be the most common. Some people a lightness, some people just the darkness. Um, some people who report the modulating grayscale also report that there's some kind of color involved in the patterning. But we're looking at a screen that is blank without any discernible imagery uh, on it. And then you have the, the capacity of imagery to be projected on it. So the image of thinking happens on a mental screen, memory, planning, fantasy, typically. I like the category of fantasy planning because I have, my mind is very active at planning things and some things I'm actually going to do and some things are just endless churning of plans. I can't tell you how many... Uh, pottery studios I've built and I haven't you know 
touched clay in 40 years, but the mind likes to churn on, on that. Um, you have the capacity to determine the outline of the body in visual thinking. It's called proprioceptus, and it's, an, a, it's, a, it's a feedback uh, between internal visual thinking and sensation in the body. It's a way of determining how the body is currently positioned in internal visual thinking. If you don't provide constant movement of the body, the, that visual image can drift wildly. Um, if you do, a, say, a strong determination sit where you don't move, the, um, the, uh, the body in visual thinking can take on wild shapes. Um, most of the time, for me, at this point in my practice, if I sit for 50 minutes or an hour without moving, the visual experience of the body will be a pear shape with five points, two points sticking out here for the legs, two points sticking out here for the arms, and a point for the head. You move once and it snaps right back into how the body is actually positioned. The body's location in the current environment is another aspect of visual thinking. So if you were to just briefly close your eyes and look to see if you could see the body sitting in the room as an after image, that is almost always available. Most people have a view just looking straight out, but some people do also report a view outside the body looking at the body. You have um, the visual, the outline of the body is often made by a rapid scan through the body comparing snapshots of visual reaction to local sensation in the body and creating the outline. So you also have that capacity of image response to sensation in the body. And then you also typically have the response of uh, an image reaction to uh, external sound. That's internal visual thinking, so that, that's the complete list of, of object for internal visual thinking. If you were to get tired and open your eyes uh, and, and you were highly concentrated, the internal visual experience would expand outward and you would be able to have contact with it in external sight space, but that usually takes a lot of concentration to happen. So mainly sit with your eyes closed so you have an easier access to it. Internal auditory thinking, so for most people that's inside the head between the ears or actually at the ears, it's the place where you hear the clear talk of the mind. Everybody familiar with the voice inside or voices inside your head that you know are your own? <laughs> you may also notice that there's a subtle vibratory activity in the same space and that the cognition of what the clear talk is going to be precedes the clear talk and if you're concentrated well enough on that cognition that the clear talk never arises, it just stays as a knowing what the mind is thinking without generating words. Most of the time we're not that well concentrated and so the words are formed and we can listen to them. So clear talk are the words that you can understand and then that other subtle vibratory activity is also part of uh, the auditory space. When we talk about the feel-in aspect or the, the uh, internal aspect of the body, what we're looking for here is uh, awareness of our emotional experience. The difficulty with um, 
a touching into the moment by moment emotional experience is that it will be available to you more or less based on your conditioning. Some people's childhood conditioning um, causes them to lose awareness of their moment by moment emotional experience. They su- they suppress it, or they actually. I'm going to make a distinction between repress and suppress. Repression is an automatic unconscious process which you don't have a lot of facility to undo and suppression is a conscious experience of pushing things out of awareness. The body-mind processes the information at 11 million bits per second. Uh, That's based on one group of neuroscientists. Um, Consciousness or awareness processes at about 16 bits per second. So you have 11 million bits of raw data and you have the bandwidth in awareness of 16. So there's an enormous amount of experience which is simply never allowed into consciousness. That's what really happens to your emotional process uh, or your awareness of emotional processes based on your conditioning as a child. If you learned as a child to repress awareness of your emotional experience, it isn't that you don't have an emotional experience, it's that it's not allowed into consciousness. And so uh, for this piece of practice, if there's no awareness of emotion in the body, then uh, practice as an invitation to allow it to enter. It isn't that you don't have it, it's that it's not allowed into consciousness, and so you have to invite the mind to allow it to come into consciousness. Depending on your conditioning as a child, you'll have had a lot of experience teasing out the different kinds of emotional experiences that you have. Uh, And if you didn't have a, a caregiver that taught you how to do that when you were a child, you will you may not have learned to do it and so that you may not have good sensory clarity, you may not have good resolution about what your internal emotional states are. And there are techniques that you can use to develop a much clearer way of being. But in tonight's meditation we don't need to know that really. We just need to know whether the sensation is emotional or not. We don't need to know which emotional experience it is. So, um, for instance, I asked last week, I'll bring it up again, if, if, for instance, you have pain in your body, that's not part of the exploration. It isn't. So, when you say emotional centers, are you talking about somatic responses? Well, you have four different types of emotional experience, typically. One is the reaction to the present moment, which is on the surface, face, front of the throat, front of the torso, inside of the arms here, inside of the legs here. It's a vibratory energy. And what's really happening there is that the the body-mind is reading the conditions of the present moment, it's formulating a response, and it's beginning to prepare the body to take the action that it thinks is necessary to take and you detect in the body the subtle physiological changes that are un- the body is undergoing in preparation to take an action and depending what the pattern of that is you recognize it and we call it by a name of emotion. So for instance, if you were angry and you were in the fight mode the blood would rush up to the torso, you'd get adrenaline, you'd get endorphins 
the, the blood would especially rush into the arms so that you were prepared to defend yourself and you would feel that flush of the blood moving and the body preparing the, and you would recognize that that pattern of movement in the body is called anger if the fight or flight mechanism went off and flight was the thing what you would notice is uh, the blood rushing into the, the, the legs you'd notice a big blast of adrenaline also in a blast of endorphins and you would recognize that uh, jittery getting ready to go movement as fear if the reaction was something uh, of sadness you would notice that the blood rushes out of the limbs into the organs into, and that the whole body mind shuts down so there's a big activation not of the sympathetic nervous system which is activating but a big activation of the parasympathetic nervous system which is the shutdown if you're going to freeze, every, all of the blood rushes into the center of the body, away from the limbs, so that you can't move. And then you would recognize that as sadness. Um, how do you recognize them? When you're, when you're an infant and your caregiver scoops you up and attunes to you and empathetically connects to you and understands what you're feeling, then they tell you what that pattern of experience is. So each of us will have learned from our caregivers early what the pattern of emotion is if we had skillful caregivers. If we didn't have skillful caregivers, they would not have informed us what was happening, or they would have formed us in, informed us in a limited way what was happening, and that would be the, the extent of how we uh, are aware of these things and how we classify them within ourselves. I'd like to say that there are 220 words in the English language that describe discrete emotional states. There was nothing like 220 words in my mother's emotional vocabulary, and so I would say that maybe uh, there were 15, something like mainly anger, fear, and sadness, the big three. So you have to reflect on your own conditioning and also begin to do some investigation about what your emotional, present moment emotional awareness is. Uh, you can infer from the way that it is in the present moment what, the, what your experiences were as a child because most of these lessons are completed by the time you're three years old. What do you remember about your life before the age of three? Most people don't remember anything or one or a few memories, right? But you can infer based on how you relate to the, the clarity of your own emotional experience what must have happened to you because the conditioning uh, falls into these very clear patterns pretty easily. Um, we learn to deactivate, we learn to hyperactivate our emotional system based on uh, thinking and based on the, the conditioning that we had as a child. So if you notice that you suppress awareness of your, or you repress awareness of your emotional experience moment by moment, then you, we would call that a deactivating strategy. 
And if you have a sense of uh, a constant hyperactive, uh, intense emotional experience, we would call that hyperactivating. In the human body, um, there's these four aspects, of, four sort of sections of the brain that operate this system. We have the amygdala, there's two of them in there, and they activate the, par- the sympathetic nervous system, which is the activation. That's dangerous. I need to prepare for danger. And then uh, that's communicated through the orbital frontal cortex to the uh, hippocampus. The hippocampus is supposed to evaluate whether the perception of threat is real or not. And if it isn't real, it communicates the corpus callosum to shut down the amygdala. So if you're care as an early child was good enough, this system will be robust and and, and coordinated. You'll notice something that might be dangerous or difficult and you'll activate and then the the mind will evaluate whether it's real or not and then it will deactivate. Um, the, The hippocampus will deactivate the amygdala. And so you go through life with a fairly balanced uh, interface with the world and the interior. If your conditioning was not that uh, as children, then you'll have something else happening. Uh, if you're a deactivator, then something happens and you have almost no awareness of emotion in the body. Some people who use a deactivating strategy have an intellectual or a mind-based understanding of what their emotional experience is, but they don't feel anything in the body. Um, Some uh, deactivators don't have any awareness of their emotion at all, either mentally or in the body, and so they have a sense of uh, an idealized view that everything is typically pretty good. They could be yelling at you and still be thinking to themselves that everything is pretty good. If your mind is hyperactivating, then you will notice that there's that the, the the sympathetic nervous system goes off and you're frightened and it's very slow. The mind is very slow to settle, so there's a lot of anxiety, a lot of experience of fear. Um, This is an important thing to be able to begin to understand about how your system has been conditioned because you can select ways of practicing meditation that will help you um, move in the direction of a more... Present moment awareness that accurately reflects the sensing experience. Is that making sense? So we're we're noting, we're not labeling. So noting is to know where your awareness is in the moment and to soak into the sensing experience. So that's what you want to do. This is the comparison of outside and in, or fixation and uh, empirical. Uh, one of the, the mind states that you want to be able to do or one of the metacognitive skills that you want to be constantly doing is validating that your perception of what's happening is actually what's happening. And the way that you do that is you note, you know what you've made the thing into and then you soak into the sensing experience to see if it's actually reflective, an accurate reflection of what the sensing experience might be. Does that make sense? So it's an active investigation, noting, knowing, 
my attention is being drawn to the body, the body seems to be angry, and then I'm soaking into the experience of anger in the body to see if that's an accurate reflection. No? Yes? So, oh, yeah. Well, is, can, you, can you have a neutral experience with feeling? Totally. So then you wouldn't, you, if you have a neutral experience with feeling, then you're in hear or see. Right. Yeah, we're, we're noting single occurrences, so your attention is in visual thinking, there's no awareness of body or auditory, really. Then auditory, then into the body. Just let it move, no direction at all. Just let it be drawn to whatever is interesting. You may be drawn into the body and know that there's an emotional experience there, but not know which one it is. That's totally fine, because we're not trying to tease about, out the individual, and we're just trying to get the big categories separated. Well, last week I too went internal and had a headache, and so I thought I was doing the practice by noting the headache. Now, that was obviously what we're not supposed to have done. Right. Yeah, but if we had had a headache and we were irritated and angry and suffering, it seems like that's an internal. Right, that would be something. You'd note the emotional reaction to the physical pain, but the physical pain itself would not be included. So just feeling, feeling the body, feeling, feeling, right. that was... Right. Yeah. What I did also. Uh-huh. These are all spontaneous, you know, those when we're meditating and you're suggesting, these are all things that we are to recognize that are just spontaneously occurring to us. Right, in the moment. What if, what if you can't recognize something that or it seems as if nothing's happening spontaneously. Um, we could use uh, another label for that, which would be all rest. Say that again, please. If there's no activity in visual thinking, there's no activity in auditory thinking, there's no emotion in the body, which you're quite right, could happen, then just use the label rest or all rest. Then from whence do you proceed with that? I mean, I find myself having that frequently when we do this exercise. What happens? And that that I'm not really experiencing anything, and I'm wondering, you know, how many other people in the room are they having these different thoughts every ten seconds, and am I just a dumb shit sitting here with absolutely with and an are absolute you, void? And are you knowing that in words? Mm, no, I mean, I'm I'm sitting there and we're meditating, and I'm and I'm thinking. I should be like when we, you know, see, hear, feel, and I'm I'm not connecting to any of those. Right. So, um, how would you know that? Because because I actively think, am I seeing, hearing, and and there's nothing there. And so, and you're thinking that in words. Um. So that would be here, in. What does this make any sense? Yeah. No. It's. Yeah. It. it, it you're, you want to note that, that voice as well. So if you're having words in the mind that's saying, I'm not doing this right, there's nothing happening, my whole body is just quiet, that's words, and that's herein. And so you would note herein. Mm-hmm. And that would mean that you've, been, you've gotten caught up in the, in the content of, of herein. And you, you need to come out into awareness and notice that the mind is talking. 
without identifying with the content of talking and just label it as herein. And if I were not feeling anything and that frustrated me, then I could tap into that it was feeling state. Right. The frustration that you're, you don't have good clarity is also an emotion. So that would be a feeling. And do you have much in the way of visual thinking? Well, I know it, it really varies. We've done this so much, so many times. And sometimes I sit and there's something there, but more frequently um, there's an absence of things, so I'll find something else to do. You know, I'll, I'll do a meta or I'll do a concentration uh -huh. or whatever. But, but I'm interested in trying to do this because of the value you attach to it. Right. And I find myself not being able to do it very well. Right. I don't, I don't mean to put a quality on it like that. I find myself experiencing that it's not happening. And I, and I think, and when, it, when I'm in that state, I think to myself, shit, is this happening? Is everybody else in the room, you know, doing this, really experiencing every sea feel here? That I'm, and, you know, what is it? Why is it that I am not? Um, so then the question is, how do you know that? How do you know that you think that you're not doing it right or that you may not be able to I don't do like it. to put a label on it doing it right. I'm, I'm okay. just talking about you know, experiencing what you're talking about. Right. So um, how do you know whether you think you're, do you're having the experience that's being described or not? Because as I'm meditating and I try to focus on whether I'm in a see, hear, or feel mode, I'm not recognizing any of the three. Okay. Um, What's left? Rest. Rest. Or... I don't mean to monopolize it. No, no, no. I think that this is, this is very useful. Else is feeling here. It's a smaller group now, so I wanted to ask you this for so long. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't want to bother you when we were in Colorado and there's 10 or 12 or 14 people in the room, you know? Um, no, I think that this is important. What is it that you're perceiving if, if you don't put it into those three broad categories? What is there? Mm, it's, it's, it's a frustration of sort that I'm not tapping into those and so I end up doing something else. You know, as I said, I'll go to concentration or a meditation so or something like that. It, so the quality is impatience? Mm. No, it's more a wondering why I'm not spontaneously appreciating a see, hear, or feel. Right. Um, you know, is it so the, again, the question is, how would you know that? So, and the reason that I'm asking that is so that I can understand what is the sensory experience that you're having to be able to know that. If it isn't in, in see in, see hear in, or feel in, what what is it that you're perceiving? And then what what would you call that? What mm. it's it's more the perception is more trying to identify a see here feel but not being able to, and therefore being frustrated by it, just saying okay I'll go to meta or concentrate. Right. So don't do that. Don't leave the technique. Just hang in there. Um, and if you don't perceive any of those, then use the label all rest to describe that. Oh, and so just rest until or unless something, until something else happens. And don't be frustrated by it. 
Well, if you're frustrated by it, that would be feel in, mm. because that's a feeling. If you can detect it in the body, you may only know it in the mind, uh, and then that would be see in or hear in, depending on which activation it is. But in order to know frustration, there's going to be some representation of it in one of the three. So he is sensing it then? Well, yeah. There, if frustration is a, an emotional response to uh, difficulty that doesn't resolve, and that's an emotion. So part of the clarity aspect of this is to begin to recognize the, these sensations. So for instance, what I notice um, sometimes is that I will be caught up in the content of thinking and, and have not been aware that the mind is using words. And then as soon as I do that, I'll say, herein, and the mind will shut them off, just as a kind of knee-jerk response. If you get caught into thinking, maybe you could add, you could say thinking, but it's probably better to, to uh, um, infer, because you weren't aware, that, that you had been listening to auditory thinking and not aware that that, act, that was activated. Uh, and then just label it as herein. But George, like for instance, I have tinnitus. I mean, my ears 24-7 ring. So, I hear... But, so that would be, let's call that a hear out. But my internal emotional state would be like despair or... Right. Or, you know, fear or sadness or... That it could never, it'll never go away. And would you know that in words? Or would you know it just in the feeling in the body? Oh, I would label it with words in my head, yes. Right. So that would be herein, different from the tinnitus. Because you're using words. I, I, I can't believe I have tinnitus, it's going on forever, it's so frustrating and difficult and so unpleasant is all words. That's herein. That, that the internal talk of the mind is herein. And the frustration would be... Feel it. Despair would be feel in. Right. What would the tinnitus be? Feel out. But that's in my head. I don't understand that. I don't understand that. It oh. seems like that's in. Like the tinnitus, is, what we're talking about in herein is the clear talk of the mind. So anything besides that has to be out. Right. So... The tinnitus is not the clear talk of the mind, it's a physical response in the cochlea. The, the, there's a, the little hair just gets into a spasm, which is what kind of that is. Would you speak to, once we do the label, once we say herein, what immediately follows in this exercise? So you're just watching from awareness where your attention is, what sensing experience is dominant. And then you label herein, and then where does your awareness go? So it's a question, where does your awareness, we're, we're inquiring. Right. Okay. It's an investigation. investigation. You don't want to direct it, you just want to watch it go. Okay. So that if it doesn't go, you just stay with the words in your head? Yeah, then it would be herein the next time you label. Uh-huh. Quick question on feel in versus herein for emotion. If, you, if you're not 
experiencing emotion in words, but you feel the vibratory process of it coming along. You're like, I'm about to be angry. Right. Not saying that out loud, but you're recognizing that state. Is that feel or um, it, it, there's a little bit of arbitrariness to this system, but that anything, that auditory, vibratory, subtle activity is herein. Um, I have a strong reciprocal response in the larynx to that vibratory energy in the mind. I can almost, it's almost easier for me to identify the vibration in the larynx first and then look for the vibration in the mind because they're reciprocal if you notice it in the larynx that would be uh, feel out so it's the one in the head that's that's here in and, and anything sort of reciprocal then it's very common that people have it in the larynx because we're so so much of what we think in words we then eventually say in words that the, the linkages are there and feeling is just when you feel the rush of adrenaline or whatever yeah, static thing. Just emotion. But specifically the, the physical Right, in the body. And to feel how it is the rest of the Everything else. sensations, like pain and stuff. Everything else is feel out. One way, if you have trouble locating emotion in the body, is you can do a survey of everything that's feel out, and then any sensations that are left in the body are going to be feel in. One of the things about herein is that it's almost constantly running, and so it just becomes the wallpaper of the mind and so the, that really paying attention to it will make it more 3D and easier to detect good, good insight though to notice that I really appreciated your condensed instruction about the the value, the intent and the value of skillfully identifying which sense mm -hmm. event was happening. I, obviously now as I try to say what it was, I didn't quite grasp it, but it was at the moment that I heard it, it was like, oh yeah, that's what we're doing here. And I could feel it's long, it's not long, it's broad usefulness. Mm -hmm. Good. Thanks. Definitely more challenging with that across the street, though. I must say that. Oh, <laughs> lots of feeling coming up around that, <laughs> which you were noting. Feel in, feel in. <laughs> that would be feel in and hear in. Uh, which one did you pay attention to? <laughs> um, so there's a sense of self arising often when, when, when the mind gets angry at something like that. Um, I'm, I have a sense that because they're going to be doing their dance thing every night that we're here, that, that, that this will be a feature of this space. <laughs> yeah, but, but you could also, because it isn't the object of meditation, 
become concentrated enough on what is the object of meditation that you would hardly notice it. George, just when I think you're hearing, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not supposed to hear anymore. Yeah, I don't hear practice is internal more. Well, what we're going to do next is um, distinguishing focus in, focus out. So then if your attention was drawn to that, you would simply be labeling that focus here out. So that this, the, the, the real pulling apart of in and then the broad category of out is, is, is one way to be in this process. This is as we're moving through these investigations. And so um, being a huge visual thinker um, or having lots of visual images, I kept thinking of, or I, the image of my new grandson just kept coming up. Mm-hmm. And it would be the adoring parents, and then I would think, how are they going to fuck this? Kid up. Yeah. <laughs> Even though I'm sure they'll have secure attachment. He's I mean, I think that most parents fuck up their kids some way or another. Well so fuck then up I'm sounds thinking, so pejorative. <laughs> <laughs> and then when I go to that and there's not the visual image of Ezra and it's just me thinking that, then that's um, feeling it. Uh, I hear it. Hear when, when it's to just the word, yeah. About the That's hearing. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So uh, we, we could explore it from a number. What it's probably doing is that the disquiet that arises from the concern about the child is then being regulated by the talking. So that would be another another investigation, the next step of investigation. Oh, and then that would explain the acid in my stomach. Right. But then that's <laughs> internal. Right. That's that's, in, that, that's not internal. The acid in my stomach. That's physical. It's yeah. It's, it's feel out. So remember that emotion happens in the body because of chemicals that are dumped. Everything that happens in the body happens because chemicals are dumped into the system. So that the, the, the that effect is is that is part of the body mind thing. There was a wonderful cartoon by Rose Chaz in the New Yorker uh, this week. Did you see it? It's a person sitting on a couch, and the caption is "The Body Mind Conundrum." And the bubble, there's a bubble coming out of the head of the person. It says, "Get up," and there's a bubble coming out of the body that says, "No." <laughs> <laughs> That's a brilliant explanation of it, right? Uh, John? I I probably set myself up for this, but I had the sense that I didn't experience any emotion in the body, and I basically thought through everything. So I, however long we were sitting here, I sat here in for almost the entire time. Right. Totally fine. Um, It makes me feel like a robot. It does, doesn't it? Um... You know, these there there's an insight in there that you can infer that that you don't have awareness much of the emotion in the body because you are repressing it. That would be an inferent inferential insight. And then, if you wanted to do something about that, the technique to do for that would be noting feeling states technique, which we'll also get to. But um, 
the what I would like you really to be able to do is to have a fascination, a, a joy and fascination in figuring out your conditioning, not a condemning mind because it somehow makes you inadequate. It doesn't make you inadequate. It makes you the the wonderful person that you are, the way that you are, right? Um, and then you can begin to examine in, in this exploration of how you're actually conditioned, whether this is serving your exploration or not. And then you can begin to move in directions that would free you up to, to explore and come back. I like to talk about this in attachment terms, but um, how do you connect to people and how do you regard uh, your exploration in the world in relationship to other people because that's how you find meaning. You find meaning in connection to other people and you find meaning in exploring what has meaning to you in the world. And one of the, the, uh, the, the great joys of life is an intimate sharing of what you find out about the world. Um, and you would have learned to do this if you had a, a caregiver that was interested in that. And you will not have learned to do this if you didn't. Um, we know that this is a, a great place of joy, of being alive. And if you discover that actually you didn't have the conditioning that, that really uh, allows that to, to flower in your life, then it isn't too late to learn those skills. It's just kind of a pain in the ass to do it as an adult, right? Have you ever been around a two-year-old who picks something up and comes over and gives it to you? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. That's how we learn to share our exploration. We go out into the world, we find something, and then we bring it to somebody to share it with them. And then depending on how it went with your caregiver, but did they show interest in it? Did they uh, encourage you to go find something else? Did they give it back to you? Did they put it on a high shelf? And, and tell you to stop interrupting them, what happened to you, which you may not even be able to remember. Do you, are you aware of the incessant demands that a two-year-old can make? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yep. Stop it, can't you see I'm talking on the phone? How many times have you heard that in a, in a public space and understand that actually what the message the child is receiving is that they're not, they're not interested, they're not important, and what they're doing doesn't matter. And we, as children, adapt to these things because we don't really have a choice. I, I, I have this image of my sister. She one morning got on her tricycle and rode off. She was like three years old. And uh, seven hours later, the police returned her. And as she got out of the backseat of the squad car, she looked at me and said, I could have got away. It <laughs> <laughs> was a great summing up of our early life. <laughs> All right. Um, we're a little over, so I'm going to rush. Um, this is deepening your practice, so I'm always advocating deepening your practice. One way to do that is by going into retreat practice. Um, I have a summer retreat coming up. It's uh, July 3rd through 9th. It's up at the Seven uh, 
Circles Retreat Center in Central California near the Sequoia National Park. So it's up in a beautiful place. Does anybody here not have one of my flyers? Because I've been passing them out. Anyway, uh, it's up on my website, metagroup.org, if you want to register for it. Um, I think we have maybe 10 spaces left in the retreat, so if you, you want to consider doing it, take a look at these. Also, um, you know, uh, we have a new space here, and the space is being supported by Donna, so I'm freely offering the teaching, but at the same time, um, it needs to be supported so that we can keep going. Um, the suggested Donna for this space is going to be $20, so, uh, but this is your individual act of generosity, so if $20 uh, is a good amount for you, do that. If it doesn't mean that much to you, do, do more than that so that it has a sense of being generous. If, if it's too much, do whatever the amount is that you can do. Um, do see if you can make an effort to, to contribute something each time you come because this is a practice of generosity for yourself, a sense of opening to that. But if you're not resourced and you can't contribute, that's also fine. I'm happy to provide this space for you. Um, there's a very particular way that they like the space to be put back together. All of these cushions get stacked in that corner. These mats go on top of there. Uh, first the gray mats, then the dark gray mats. And the chairs get stacked and put back in this room. If you'd also help with the, the returning of the room to the, the way that it was, that's also appreciated. Thank you. And if you need to use a, a, a card, I can, I can do that. Yeah. 